Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Between the, or because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Jacob or Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent his whole father, his uh, father Jacob, and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Ham. Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt grew and greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. 
For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, are we bro- you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over, and, uh, over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to, their, to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the first time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of these heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the deserts, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your God, Repham, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophets say. 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would give your speaker clarity of thought and word and that you would indeed bless your people through the word that goes forth. May it not return empty and void. May it indeed accomplish all that you have set out for it to do as you have promised us in your very word. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a movie that came out about two apprentices who worked under a great magician. And the question of the movie kind of centers around this issue of who is going to be the heir to this great magician's title? Who is going to come out on top, if you will? Who is going to be the champ? Who is the true heir of this great magician? And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that there is a rivalry that will break out between the two men, a struggle between these two apprentices, and you can see easily, uh, or you can easily, excuse me, get lost and wrapped up in just this bitter rivalry and how horrendously they begin to treat one another as they strive after greatness and attaining this particular title. And as you witness the sacrifice required to uh, be true to an heir of a legacy, about dedicating your life to a task, not just performing on a stage, it becomes clear as the story unfolds. One is the true and great magician, and the other is a great showman. But by right, no great mag magician for there can be only one true heir to a throne or to a legacy. And it may seem odd to put it in these particular terms, but that is the question of the text before us this morning. As Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin on trial for performing signs and wonders and proclaiming Christ Jesus as the living Messiah, the heart of the matter before us is the question of who is the heir of the true religion handed down to these Israelites by their fathers, Abraham, and by Isaac, and by Jacob? Religion that we've uh, become well acquainted with as we've studied Genesis together. Who are the true followers of Yahweh? Is it those who worship God in the temple? Those who worship in the city of David? Are they the true heirs of the faith of our fathers, those who keep the customs of Moses, all the laws of men handed down from generation to generation to generation after that? Or is it this new group that has caused an uprising who keeps saying that the Messiah, who was promised long ago, even since the opening words of the Bible, a promise given right after the fall of Adam into sin, who believe the Messiah has come and he has arrived and his name indeed is Jesus. 
Are they the true heirs of this religion of our fathers handed down? That's what is at stake in our text this morning. And as you hear Stephen speak, it becomes clear that one of these two religions indeed is a fraud. It is a cheap imitation of the real thing. And it's either the Sanhedrin or it is Jesus and his disciples. One of these two groups are the true heirs of the religion established in the Old Testament. And the other has done nothing more than reject Moses. Reject Moses. If you look through this story of Stephen that begins in Acts chapter 6, you'll see Stephen has been responding to two charges that are leveled against him. This charge that Stephen has been speaking against the holy place, the holy temple where God's people gather to worship. Against this place where the chosen people of God have worshipped God for centuries. That is the one charge. And the other charge is that Stephen has been speaking against the law of Moses, against the very word of God written down by Moses' hand, that Stephen stands against the very law of God that has been declared to men. And all of chapter 7 is about Stephen's response to these accusations, taking taking these two charges to task to prove that they are false Charges, And if you follow the whole speech of, uh, uh, or sermon, which we don't have time to do this morning, Stephen has been making the claim that God never dwelt only in the temple. You see that as he appeals to how God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He never dwelt only in the temple. God never was restricted to dwelling in one particular place upon this earth. God was with Joseph when he was with him in Egypt. And God was with the people of God as they wandered in the wilderness. God never restricted himself to dwelling only in the temple. Rather, God worked in hostile environments throughout the whole world, in areas opposed to him. And in our text this morning, in verses 35 through 51, as you come to these words, Stephen turns to defend against this second accusation against him. This accusation that Stephen is preaching against the customs of Moses by teaching that Jesus is the Christ, the righteous Messiah promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the one promised to David and even to Moses himself. And so Stephen takes this charge that is presented against him, that's leveled against him, and he pulls it apart piece by piece. He flips it over on his hand, and he does it in two ways. First, he speaks about who really is the one who has rejected the teachings of Moses. Who is the one who has already rejected Moses as God's divine prophet? Stephen balks at this accusation that his teachings reject the teaching of Moses. And he says, you accuse me of rejecting Moses and his teaching, the very word of God, because I am preaching to Gentiles from Syria and Alexandria. More than that, you think that Jesus... This one I represent, the one who actually works through me, you think that Jesus himself rejected the teachings of Moses. Well, that's interesting. Why don't we go back to Exodus? Why don't we go back to the scriptures? Why don't we look back to the words of Moses and see whether you're right or not? And so Stephen, instead of pointing to how he himself is working, you'll notice he is working at the beginning of this signs and wonders. Just as Moses worked signs and wonders affirming that he was indeed a prophet 
of God before Pharaoh, and the very hand of God was working through him. Instead about speaking of these things that are taking place in Stephen's life as well, affirming the same thing, Stephen goes back and he reminds us, hey, people of Israel, they repeatedly turned away from Moses. They repeatedly turned away from the prophets of God. They repeatedly rejected both Moses and his teachings again and again and again. They turned from God's word that came through him. And he goes to the very beginning of Moses' story when he was called, before he was called as a prophet, where God had called Moses to be his mouthpiece, to be a redeemer and judge over Israel. Moses, this one called to lead the people of Israel out of the house of bondage, called to be an instrument in God's hand, the very mouthpiece that God would use to proclaim the will of God to his people. While Moses is being raised up as this leader of this people, he's rejected by them even before he gets started in his work. Moses is rejected by Israel before he could take one step towards doing the work that God had called him to do, toward redeeming his people, towards fulfilling these redemptive purposes of God for them. When Israel cries out against him, rejecting him right out the gates, who are you to judge us? Just who do you think you are? By whose authority do you seek to rule over us and decide between us? And some might say, you know, here they're rejecting Moses before they knew that God had actually called him. I mean, Moses wasn't actually called before you come to the scene with the burning bush to lead Israel out of Egypt, right? And there might be some truth to that. They may have rejected him before they knew that he was called by God. But that doesn't really make a difference here. As you see, the same thing is repeated. Because before Moses came a man whom Israel rejected, whom God had sent indeed to deliver his people. Joseph, this father of Israel, this father of the faith, who has been called to be a leader for the people of Israel. He had indeed been called by God through a dream to deliver his people, to redeem God's people. God had spoken to him in a dream and his brothers were to bow down before him. And yet Pharaoh, or yet the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, verse 9 tells us, sold this promised redeemer and judge into slavery. The sons of Israel rejected this one chosen of God to deliver his people before being appointed to the time of deliverance. You'll notice there is a theme here that is repeated. These men who come as God's chosen prophets are rejected, and they are turned away by the very people of God who claim to be God's chosen people. We see that happen again with Moses. The sons of Israel reject him as a redeemer, saying, Who made you a judge over us? Who made you ruler of you, uh, over us? You have no right to come here. You have no business to speak over us. And Stephen goes on. In verse 39, saying this isn't the only time that you see this particular prophet rejected by God's people. You remember, you remember the golden calf and how Israel rose up to play while Moses was away. You remember how people rose up against him and putting him and Moses on trial, or Moses and God on trial because there was no water. 
You remember how again and again our fathers refused to obey this man clearly sent by God, this man who performed signs and wonders proving that he was from God. This man of God's own choosing, a prophet of God who received God's law from God himself and stood continuously in the presence of God. This is the one who was rejected by his own people. This man that God used to redeem a people out of Egypt was rejected by the people who claimed they were the people of the law. He was rejected by those who claimed to worship God. And yet every time the presence of God came near and was displayed on the very face of this man, they rejected him and thrust him aside. And you begin to see Stephen doing something more here. He's not just defending his actions. Though these charges have been leveled against him, he's not just defending what he has been doing, what he has been preaching. Maybe he's already realized that his fate is sealed, that he is uh, united and uh, and, uh, uh, connected to Christ. But for whatever reason, Stephen has by this point gone beyond a simple defense of his own actions, and he begins to make his own accusations against those who claim to follow the law of God and yet reject this particular chosen redeemer. You see this pattern of Stephen reversing the accusations against him and turning the tables against those who reject the Messiah. Reject the Messiah. Stephen is weaving something far greater into his account something that will quite literally be the end of him. He's building in his retelling of Israel's history as he goes back all the way to Abraham and moves through basically the the second half of Genesis, even into the Exodus and the life of Moses. He is building into this retelling about the people who have rejected God's prophet. That these are the same exact people who sit before him on the Sanhedrin, the same Ones who rejected God's prophet then are the same ones who bring accusations against God's Redeemer now. They're the same ones who reject the Messiah. These men sitting in judgment over him are heirs to these wicked forefathers that he has been describing. And he does it almost in an offhanded way. You can almost miss it how he does this. It was central to his whole argument and speech. Stephen says in verse 37, You know how our fathers rejected the prophet Moses. The one who actually was the mouthpiece of God. Oh, by the way, do you remember what Moses said? That God would raise up another prophet like him? Who would be a redeemer like him among your brothers? And then he moves on and he continues in his sermon, continuing to recall into the minds of the Sanhedrin how the fathers of Israel continually rejected God from their midst, preferring instead to worship the gods of their own making. The gods of Moloch and the stars of the sky, verse 43, recalling into their minds how the people of the law have rejected the lawgiver again and again. That is the theme of Stephen's speech. Those who have rejected the law or the law or the people of the law who claim to be the people of the law or the ones who rejected the lawgiver, the very prophet and redeemer who would come. Making it the point that just because a person is the people of the law doesn't mean that they are obedient to the law that God has given. You know, not all Israel are Israel. Those who are members 
of the body of the people of God are not necessarily all actually the people of God. That is one of the things that Stephen is articulating here. And Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, declares to the high council, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit just like your forefathers before you. Your forefathers killed and rejected the promises or prophets, men who, re- uh, men who represented being in God's very midst. Your forefathers would have killed the prophet Moses if they had had their way. And now you, you who receive the law and do not keep it, you are guilty of an even greater sin than they. For you do not only reject the prophet, but you, ki- you do not kill only the messengers of God and the messengers reject them. But you killed the Messiah himself, the righteous one of God. And with these words, Stephen seals his fate. I mean, it it would have been safer for Stephen to walk into a Caesar Augustus palace and say, hey, your mama wears combat boots and I think your sister's ugly. (laughs) What Stephen has said is, it's surely true. But he's not just accusing these men that they killed the very Messiah that was prophesied about with Moses. Peter makes that same accusation, and yet he presents the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, he says, You killed this one, and yet God used it to redeem a people. But that is not what is going to get him killed. Stephen just told the leaders of the Old Testament church not only that, but that these men aren't really part of the people of God, that they have no place among the people of God. He says, you may be children of Israel in the flesh, but you are not circumcised in your hearts or your ears. And that might seem odd to us, but Stephen is saying, oh, there is a difference between you and me. One of us is able to stand in the very presence of God and the other is just a fraud. One of us has been the true follower of Moses as articulated in the way I have presented. But how do we know the difference as we come to this particular text? I mean, are these men, this high council whom Stephen stands before part of God's people or not? I mean, if the leaders of the Old Testament church are, according to Jesus, a brood of vipers, meaning that they are the children of the devil, and now, according to Stephen, these same men are receivers of the law, but not doers. What hope is there for us? These are the leaders of the people of God. And Stephen outright says, you do not belong to God's people. What is the difference between them and us, so to speak? Well, Beloved, the difference can be seen in verse 53. These men of Israel would rather have the customs of men, man-made laws, than the law of God itself. They would rather submit to the laws given and written by man than God himself. Why? Because the law of God is impossible for sinful man to keep. It is a mirror at which we see our own sinfulness because God's law requires that we are to love our Lord, the Lord our God with all our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. No man can keep this law that has been given by God, and it only shows our imperfections continuously. We have one of two choices as we approach the very law of God. Either we can make our own version of it, man-made, softer, kinder, gentler laws, 
otherwise known as the custom of Moses here, and keep them to the best of our ability, or we can recognize our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses, and inability to keep God's law. We can recognize that we stand guilty before a holy God of breaking his holy law that he has given. And that we can be harsh, that can be harsh news to hear. No one likes to hear that you're not good enough. No one likes to hear that they are miserable sinners who stand guilty before a holy God. You can never do everything required of you. But beloved, this very fact, standing before a holy law that condemns us as sinners, drives us to Christ. The only righteous one of God who was ever able to keep God's law perfectly who came into this world for that very purpose. He came and he took on human flesh in order that you and I could be set free from the slavery of our sin. Just as Moses redeemed people from the slavery of Egypt, Christ Jesus redeems us from the slavery of our own sin. People of God, the difference between these two groups that we've been watching this morning, between Stephen and the Sanhedrin, is that one rejects the law of God and in turn the very presence of God by rejecting his law, setting up our own laws and our own customs and presenting or perverting the presence of God, pretending that he is there in those man-made laws. Well, the other group, Stephen, the apostles, you and I, we recognize that God is a righteous God. We are not a righteous people We do not somehow deserve to be in his presence. And yet, through the perfect sacrificial blood of Christ, we now really and truly can enter into the presence of God boldly and without fear. And in this, we're able to actually seek to live by God's law, freely accepting and admitting when we fail to keep it, yet emboldened and empowered to know the glory and holiness of God's very presence. I'd like us to consider briefly one last point this morning, very briefly, the rejection that follows of Christ's disciples. The rejection of Christ's disciples. People of God, as you come to the end of this text, as we come as members of this group with Stephen and the apostles, there's still one nagging question for us to deal with. So what? I mean, of course, Moses was rejected for bringing the message that we are sinners in need of cleansing before a righteous God. It's not a very popular message. Of course, Christ was rejected. I mean, Scripture prophesied that he would be rejected, right? The stone the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. That had to happen for Scriptures to be fulfilled, right? But Jesus took all of that rejection upon himself, and now we, by faith, rest in Christ alone For salvation, everything will be hunky-dory because we do this, right? Now we're just looking for one big happy ending to that, our lives that will last forever and ever. But Christ never promises an easy life for his disciples, did he? The only promise that seems certain about the disciples' faith is when Christ says, as they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. If they persecuted the master, how will the servants indeed escape? Stephen comes to know this particular reality very well after delivering this message about Christ, that Christ, this righteous one, was now standing at the right hand of God the Father, 
That those who rejected Moses and who rejected and killed were the ones who rejected and killed Christ, in turn go out and they stone Stephen to death. They killed a disciple of Christ because they could not bear the truth that the only way into the presence of the Father is through the perfect law keeper, the Son of God, and not through the temple, not with man-made laws. People of God, do not be surprised when the seed of the serpent seeks your destruction, when he seeks your life because you believe and know that the only way to the Father is through the righteousness of Christ. This is not a popular message today. It never has been. If you're willing to say that the only way to the Father for me is through Christ, but it may be some other way for you, maybe you can go through, get through it through Buddha's teaching, that might be acceptable to those who live in this world, who live by man-made laws, who believe that religion is nothing more than man's opinion of God, but that will not be acceptable before the Father. And in that sense, we see Stephen as an example to us. Not that we should seek to go out and be stoned to death. But Stephen teaches us what it means to be true to the truth of the gospel. To stand for and in the grace of Christ Jesus, even to the point of death. Beloved, may we seek the Son while he may be found May we hold fast to this one, clinging to him with all that is within us as the true source of life in the presence of the Father. And may we indeed stand firm in the sure hope of his coming again, knowing that he holds us in the very palm of his hand. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come before you. And we confess that we often believe that we ought to have life easier than it is. That we ought to go through life without trials or tribulation. And yet we come and we see a text here where we know that Christ has redeemed us. He has indeed delivered us from the law that we were unable to keep. And we thank you and magnify you for it. Father, we pray that you would give us strength and courage when we are persecuted for our faith. When we... When we fail to stand against the grain for the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would empower us with the power of Christ's death and his resurrection that has removed the sting of death itself. We praise you and magnify your name for what you have done in it. We pray that you would grant to us that we might hereafter live godly and righteous and sober lives to the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.